The skills we need to live and work are changing. But what does that mean for education? Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking to inspirational teachers in different countries who are taking the skills that made our modern world possible and reinventing them for a new generation. This is Old School, the skills that made us and how they're changing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Old School, the podcast that looks at the skills that made us and how they're changing. And my guest today is an award-winning educator who teaches in the South Bronx in New York City, and he's the founder of Green Bronx Machine. Together, he and his students have grown over 165,000 pounds of vegetables, and it's a program which has now expanded into hundreds of other schools. He's the subject of a new documentary, Generation Growth, and a best-selling author as well. I'm delighted to introduce my friend, Stephen Ritz. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Well, good morning, Nicholas, and everybody out there. Welcome to the Bronx. Great to speak to you today. Could you tell us a bit about your project, how it came to be, how it's grown, and the impact that it's had for your community? Super. So Green Bronx Machine started largely as an after-school program for over overage undercredited youth um, realized that the Bronx has some of the lowest graduation rates in all of New York City, New York State, and the nation. So moving children into spheres of success into an economy was absolutely important to me. And this work emerged at a time where there was very little connection between going to school and the prospect of a job. So my simple goal was to create spheres of success using my credibility with the public and private sector to move kids who were apart from success to being a part of success in ways that benefit everybody. So it was really about workforce development. And then along the way, we learned about growing vegetables. Um, so it started as an environmental remediation program, workforce development, green roofs, green walls. And literally, once we learned about food, that was game changing. And it came at a time, if you will, where both nationally, internationally and locally, the good food movement, the slow food movement, the health crises, that perfect intersectionality of 21st century realities made a difference. But, you know, at a very core level, being able to take a young man or a young woman um, who is 20, 21 years of age, five or six years behind academically, not even finishing high school, and move them into a living wage job was game changing. You know, it moved, it really helped reduce crime, litter, addiction. And then once we started learning about food, wow, it was game on. So we've moved now from a, a program that focused on after school to being a whole school program because I realized it was just easier to raise healthy children and fix, than to fix broken men and was absolutely focused on school performance. Because if you can get ahead of the curve, odds are you'll have less children and less young adults who are needing support services. So Green Bronx Machine is a whole school program. It is the art and science of growing vegetables aligned to daily instruction. I'm not the salad guy. I'm not the garden guy. I'm not the good eating guy. I'm all of that. But what I really am is a school leader rooted in scalable and replicable pedagogy that has a twofold effect. One, high performing schools and happy, healthy children. And then most importantly, satisfied teachers. Because at the end of the day, teachers change lives. And if they're engaged, motivated and supported, 
epic happens daily in classrooms. Fantastic. I mean, you've talked so much about the impact that it's had. Why is it so important in the community in which you're working to have good, healthy food? What are the kind of challenges that your community has has faced? Why is this intervention important? Well, well let me be clear. Um, from my humble opinion, both here and around the world, and realize I have schools in some of the poorest congressional districts in America and some of the wealthiest communities in the world. Food is a basic human right, and the most important school supply in the world is food. Children will never be well-read if they're not well-fed. So whether children are coming to school hungry or malnourished, or they're coming to school you know, with 5,000 empty calories in their belly, um, dysfunctional, hopped up on sugar, hopped up on caffeine, um, it's, it, you know, food is a non-negotiable. You wouldn't put vinegar in your Porsche, your Mercedes, or in your case, your Rolls Royce, Nicholas. So for me, I want to treat every child like they are my Rolls Royce and give them the best food possible. Now, closer to home here in my community, you know, we have limited means and limited access to healthy, fresh food. For 10 years, the Bronx has been 62 out of 62 counties um, for health outcomes. So we are the least healthy county in all of New York State. I'm getting ready to celebrate a milestone birthday. And believe it or not, you know, many of the young men that I grew up with are either dead, in jail, diseased, or not even walking upright. So the billions of dollars that we have spent on healthcare, whether it's obesity, diabetes, uh, on healthcare, this is really a very prescriptive model of self-care, of self-empowerment. And then when you consider, you know, the carbon footprint of what we're eating in communities of like ours, where every single product comes in in a single serve truck, you know, bathed in fossil fuel, transported from thousands of miles away, the ability to grow your own food locally using less, less water, using less energy is the absolute cure um, for some of the global issues that we are facing around food insecurity. And let me be clear, growing food is a license to print money. You know, I've met a lot of kids who don't like vegetables, but I've never seen a child who's allergic to money. And in this classroom, we are growing money daily. So where, when did this light, light bulb moment hit? Like, when were you like, oh, the answer is to grow our own vegetables? Was that something that was uh, part of your own history? Did you grow up knowing how to grow vegetables, how to farm? Or was it something that you and your students discovered as you went along? Because Oh, let me be clear. Yeah. I have no experience growing vegetables. I am not a farmer. I talk about that in my TED Talk. You know, to this day, I still don't even know the formula for photosynthesis. And, and between you and I, I kill a lot more plants than I grow. I only post pictures of the living ones. That's the secret to my success, but I've never heard a child. But, um, you know, remarkably, I was an aspiring professional athlete, something you probably didn't know. Until the age of almost 40, I had a 40-inch vertical jump. I was still waiting for the Knicks to call me back. Um, remarkably, I got very hungry. 10 years ago, I couldn't tell you 10 kinds of fruits and vegetables. Now I grow 37 kinds of fresh fruits, and vegetables, and herbs in a classroom with kids. Um, so it was my own odyssey that kind of led me through this. And again, in 2004, after some very tragic personal incidents, my wife and I lost a son. We went through a lot of pain. I, I highlight this all in my book, The Power of a Plant. I wound up becoming the dean of students at one of the most troubled high schools um, in New York City. For some context, 
a 17% graduation rate, uh, 256 felonies in the building. And I was charged with teaching science to a bunch of special needs kids and disconnected youth who had no real interest in being in the building, short of the fact that they were mandated to be there by legal, by, due, due to some legal circumstances. So I, I put out this crazy call on the internet, help, I'm teaching science, send me something, a microscope, I knew nothing. And nobody answered, not a single soul. And one day I'm sitting in the classroom with the kids and I get a call on this old loudspeaker, Mr. Ritz, come to the office, please. And the kids are like, wow, they're firing him. Something bad is gonna happen. I go down to the office and I walk in and there's the principal's secretary. And she's like, Mr. Ritz, you have this huge box. And I am just overjoyed like a kid on Christmas. I'm like, yes, the internet works. My prayers have been answered. And literally, like a kid on Christmas morning, I rip open this box right in front of the principal. And inside are these little things. And they look like onions. And I was like, uh, literally WTF, and you, everyone knows what that stands for. What could this be? This is a sick joke. And uh, literally, I, I just put my head down between my legs, carried this box out of these onions, and threw it behind the radiator in my classroom behind a window. Fast forward about eight weeks later, there's a huge fight in my class. This skinny little kid goes after a gang member, uh, a female gang member, tough girl with a joke about her mother, and the whole class is going crazy. And she is really upset, and she gets up out of her chair, and I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be bad. And this skinny kid goes under the radiator, um, and I'm thinking in slow motion, my career is over. Realize we had 200 weapons violations. We had kids coming to school with guns, with knives. So I'm running across the classroom. All of a sudden, this skinny little kid sticks his hand under the radiator and comes up with a handful of flowers and starts waving it in this girl's face. And that, to me, was like a big teachable moment. So we look inside the box. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flowers. And the boys wanted to give them to the girls for sex. And the girls wanted to sell them and bring them home. And we were like, where did these flowers come from? Well, it turns out that these little onions were actually flower bulbs. And they had been sent to me by a parks department inviting us to come and plant. And literally, uh, it was a teachable moment. Long made short, that year, my students and I, my gang students and I, planted 15,000 bulbs across New York City to commemorate 9-11. And we gave birth to this incredible task force. And literally, if you come to New York City today, if you get on the Cross Bronx Expressway, all those yellow daffodils that you see every spring, those are me and my students. And we started a movement um, around, green, you know, around basically greening the borough, environmental remediation, um, you know, water remediation, stormwater remediation, parks. And then we transitioned um, into food. But it was remarkable in that, you know, those kids got invited to City Hall and everyone at City Hall thought that they were the honors program. You know, the kids cleaned up really nice. And that was a moment where I realized that you could take children who are apart from success and make them a part of success in ways that really help everybody. And then ultimately we moved from ornamental gardening and green roofs and green walls and landscape maintenance towards food. We had the epiphany around food thanks to our friends at Whole Foods um, because when the first Whole Foods opened up in New York City, we got invited. 
and realize it was me and 17 gang members showing up on the Upper West Side. Whole Foods almost had a heart attack when we walked through the door. But it was right then and there that we literally got drunk, if you will, on tomatoes and on vegetables. We walked in and saw all this food from around the world. And we saw people who were actually paying money for it. You know, things that were not available in our community. And really, the margins were really high on some of this stuff. And uh, that following year, I gave a talk at Columbia University called From Crack to Cucumbers, where I brought a bunch of former gang members who were involved in selling drugs and all kinds of other stuff who found their redemption in growing food, selling food, and being a part of the good food movement. And the rest is history. We haven't looked back since. You know, fast forward, uh, as I got a little older and a little hungrier, I swelled to over 300 pounds, you know, at, at the epitome of my heaviest, I was 330 pounds. You know, I got to talk about that with President Clinton at the Global Teacher Prize, where literally I was 330 pounds. I had a heart attack in school in front of my daughter. Uh, you know, I was diabetic. I was on medication. I had some every single symptom that was emblematic of life in, in New York City and in marginalized communities was happening to me. And I realized right then and there, I had to be about it. And at the time, Mrs. Obama was talking about the way we feed our children. So I decided to only eat the food that I grew in school with children, lost 110 pounds in seven months, went on to become a champion of change for the White House, putting farms um, inside and outside the White House and bringing students from the South Bronx to the White House and the White House right here to this very classroom. And literally, uh, that was it. I haven't looked back since. And uh, I like to say to this day, I'm bringing sexy back. Um, you know, and feeling good and feeling great. If I could grow hair, I grow a lot of food. If I could grow hair, that would be the next thing I'm working on. So you talked, you know, about the beginnings, this incredible story of how all of this came to be. But we've seen so many initiatives which have flourished and then died away. How have you kept the momentum going? Because obviously one of the things that has made your initiative such, such a success is that it's it's grown, you know, like like those flowers. It's it's flourished and it's spread all over the place from the South Bronx and it's, it's expanded out. What have you done to scale it, to build it across different communities and to keep it alive? Is that because you're still working with those uh, those former students of yours? Is it because you're working with communities, with political leaders? What is the secret source? So it's all of the above. But let me be clear, we were determined to nail it before we scaled it. So we looked at things like, you know, I'm, I, I'm a lot older than I look. You know, yesterday I, I was back at, at the school where I started in 1984, um, which is remarkable. I'm the last faculty member still working. And it's, number one, you have to have low cost. You have to have scale. You have to have the ability to serve teachers. And quite frankly, you have to have the ability to serve administrators. And what I mean by that is I learned a long time ago, I could cure cancer. I could cure some of the most pressing societal needs. But at the end of the day, to make change in an educational system, you have to talk about educational results. So we were very data driven. Our number one client are principals and superintendents, people who want to have good pedagogy in school. So we spent two years designing pedagogy, designing curriculum. And that curriculum transfers, it's not an add-on, it's an absolute build-in. It is reading, writing, math, science, technology, advocacy, rubrics-based, and metrics-driven on pedagogy. 
So number one, when you have good pedagogy, schools flourish. Now, as a human being, I'm also, and as a parent and as a resident, I'm also very concerned about the social determinants of health. So we focus number one on good pedagogy and number two, social determinants of health that could really be measured, that offered value for sponsors, uh, for corporations, for CSR initiatives, for healthcare providers. Where we're able to do pre and post program studies and really see how children and communities changed over time and how we could use that data to continuously be on what I call the recursive cycle of improvement, constantly getting better, constantly listening, constantly having feedback. So we focused on scalability, low cost, um, unlimited site licenses. Listen, we had the opportunity to sell our curriculum for quite a hefty sum of money. And we opted not to do that. This work is in our DNA. This is our lifeblood. And, you know, I believe from our little humble corner of the world, we just make, from our little humble corner of the globe, we just might change the world. So we focused on scalability, replication, professional development, access. Um, we are a very disruptive nonprofit and that our budget is small. We don't spend money on social media, marketing, none of that stuff. What we really want to do is support teachers, give teachers the tools that they need to succeed. And that is really very much the theme behind generation growth, where you see across the country in disparate communities across the nation, we're giving teachers some tools. We're giving them some low cost accessible technology. We're giving them a whole bunch of love, a lot of support, some autonomy, and wow, Epic happens because each and every day, Nicholas, teachers change lives. And let me be clear about it. It's not the cult of me. It is the cult of we. It is the cult of community. It is the cult of pedagogy. And looking at that curriculum, I, I was looking at it before we had the chance to talk today. You know, it, it is such a well-developed, well-thought-through structure. So you have week one, which is literally, I think, sowing seeds and keeping a journal. And then as you go on, you're bringing in uh you know phonics and math and teaching things like acid or base and then ending with talking about you know critical thinking problem solving how have i changed as a person how do you kind of argue for the change so you are creating through this curriculum little change makers kids who will be able to decide what to grow how to grow it and, and figure out why and how it works is that how you see it's it. about it core competencies. Listen, yeah. you know, you'll notice that there's very little in there about farming because the technology is accessible online. The fact that you and I are having this conversation, all you need to know about farming and science is online. Um, and now more than ever with these things, smartphones, wow, you can do amazing things. But the cult of pedagogy, good skills, participatory democracy, project-based learning is absolutely critical. Now, let me be clear. You know, what I love about a tower garden is that you can go from a box to a garden in 45 minutes if you're a man and 15 minutes if you're a woman, because you'll read the directions and watch the instructional video. But you can grow a copious amount of food indoors and give children this experience that they need. The other thing about tower garden technology is that it's applicable in homes, residential and commercial. Right now, we have a commercial farm in Yankee Stadium. I have students running farms with 30, 40, hundreds of towers. You know, there's a farm in Oklahoma that has, I believe, over 1,000 towers, growing tens of thousands of heads of lettuce a month. And most importantly, using 90% less water, 90% less space, 
and, and, you know, regardless of seasonality. So it is the perfect intersection, if you will. And so how does it how does it work practically? How do communities, I guess there's two questions I'd like to ask. One is, why aren't these communities better served by existing agriculture, by existing kind of, uh, you know, the, the markets? Why is it that when you looked at that Whole Foods, you were thinking, this stuff we haven't seen before, or it's completely unaffordable for my community? And then the second question is, how do your communities decide what to grow, what's right for them? You know, basically, how do you decide what you're going to put in the ground? Super, that's a great question. So as much talking as I do, I really become a very adept listener. And, you know, if there's one little gem of wisdom I could offer to my colleagues, and this is something, you know, that, that, that I've learned through the years, it's not to listen to respond, but it's listen to hear. And so I'm a very good listener. We're very responsive to our community. You realize the gardens that we have outside, the community maintains, you know, we have gardens all across the city. I can't maintain them all. So being responsive to what a community wants and a community needs is absolutely tantamount to any success. And again, you know, at the heart of Green Bronze Machine, it is my wife and I and, an, and a core, uh, a corpse, if you will, a, an entire corporation of volunteers, um, you know, kids who want to take over the world, local community members who are vetted in the process. Uh, we're starting to scale now in a very interesting and unique way with a hub and spoke model. Um, and I'm a big believer in autonomy, but our curriculum was deliberate. It was designed to grow high performing schools and happy, healthy teachers. And, you know, you've done your due diligence that 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 curriculum took two years to develop. It was beta tested across the country and around the world with 30,000 students apart from me. So we really refined it and refined it to generate academic outcomes. And, you know, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum or on your personal spectrum, I think everybody wants to see high performing public schools and happy, healthy children. You know, we could all agree on that. So that was really the basis for what we did. Um, you know, COVID was a huge blip for many, but it actually made us crisis resilient because we learned how to use the Internet. We put tons of stuff online. Um, you know, we connected with thousands of teachers. We spent tons of time and capacity putting bite-sized capsules of professional development that people could watch on a phone, could access online, could use on a tablet. We created a TV show, Let's Learn with Mr. Ritz, which was student-generated right here out of this classroom, and literally gave the community a voice. Um, you know, and my job is to be the voice for the voiceless, um, to change the narrative in communities like mine, and, and communities that are suffering and struggling all around the world. And for wealthy communities, look, um, we offer the ability to have a Tom's model, which is a buy one, get one free. And wealthy children, children of privilege are equally as entitled to grow happy, healthy food in high performing schools. And the crazy thing is this, um, you know, I was recently in Dubai, um, working at a very privileged school in a very upscale community. And the remarkable thing is all these children are growing food in school. And these are children whose parents could afford whatever the prices are of food. But the fact that they're growing food, mitigating water, creating healthy soil is moving them from being consumers to producers. They're not buying. They're not concerned with the latest, greatest toy or the newest pair of sneakers. What they're really concerned and becoming obsessed with is how they can make impact in the world. 
And that to me for a teacher is the greatest gift of all. You know, I'm paying it forward into perpetuity with the next generation of social and environmental justice equity warriors. And that's what it's about. Children saving the planet. One of the things, I, I don't know a lot about farming, which kind of speaks to how me disconnected you know, all of We're, us, all me of us either. are. Me either. I don't know much about farming. I know pedagogy, but the kids one know the, about farming. One of the things I do know is, obviously, it's incredibly hard and, and grueling, but also there's failure is kind of baked in, right? Like crops fail, harvests fail. Is that is that something which you see as as teachable as, as something that students can can learn from? Is that something that that you think about in your own work? One hundred percent. So you know, let me never waste a good failure and never let a good crisis go to waste. That's what I always say, and and never let a bad question get in the way of a good answer. Um, but yes, listen, farming traditionally is brutally tough work, and it's usually done by black and brown and immigrant poor people. Um, the coolest thing is here I am, four stories up in a 110-year-old building, and we're growing food in a real sexy way. Um, use, you know, and literally the kids get to control it. No one gets dirty. No one is laboring in the field. It is using our brains and our minds to grow our capacity. And that is very empowering. Um, you know, I've had kids come out of high school now who are managing greenhouses. Um, you know, this whole new movement of what's called CEA, Controlled Environmental Agriculture, Vertical Farming, it is a $25 billion, billion dollar industry a year and only growing. Um, you know, big kudos to uh, my friend Viraj Puri over at Gotham Greens, who, you know, put a farm on top of a roof of a building and literally drops the product right in. You know, $300 million later, he is just getting started. Um, you know, last year we were proud to have the royal family from UAE come here to our classroom in the South Bronx to learn about what we're doing. And just last week I was there, turnkeying farm systems across the Emirates. So what we're doing has universal appeal. It is making farming sexy. It's making farming accessible. It's making farming intelligent. And it's also helping to replenish it and restore the soil on our earth while saving water. So we're spot on in what we're doing and we're just getting started. You've talked a lot about how your initiative has expanded, how it's reached new communities, but you've also touched on how you've worked with political leaders from the royal family, but of course, to some of the political leaders in the US as well. I know you've been fated at the White House and you've also been appointed to, I believe that the mayor's transition team. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you're getting what you've been growing at the school and community level nationwide uh, and what kind of policy changes you'd like to see? So what we're really growing is community. That, listen, I grow vegetables, my vegetables grow students, my students grow schools, but my schools grow happy, healthy, resilient communities. And everyone can come together in community for community. It's been an interesting time for us, for sure. I am honored to be named to Mayor Adams' food transition team. And look at his own personal health odyssey. He was going blind. He was facing amputation. Um, you know, he was diagnosed a diabetic. And uh, instead, he did one amazing thing when he was looking for treatment. Instead of saying, uh, you know, treating diabetes, he put the word reversing diabetes and started learning about plant-based diets. And if you look at his odyssey, if you look at my odyssey, it's absolutely remarkable what can happen. So we're at this perfect point in time 
where number one, we're interested in climate resilient cities. We're interested in carbon footprint. You've got a mayor who's planned forward. You've got a new chancellor, Chancellor David Banks, who is right on top of creating equity and opportunity and equal experiences for all. And the most equal experience that we need in New York City and marginalized communities is access to healthy food and better health care. But health care starts with self-care because realize that, you know, 85% of what happens to a child medically is not by seeing the doctor. It's what happens environmentally. And when you think about this, when you put a seed in the ground and, and that seed doesn't flourish, you don't blame the seed. You look at the environment. So when we're putting kid, children in schools, we need to look at if they're not flourishing, why? A lot of it has to do with food. A lot of it has to do with environment. And for me, I'm of the humble belief that zip code and skin color should not determine outcomes in life. Quality education can. So giving teachers and principals in schools the tool, a curriculum that drives pedagogy and healthy outcomes is win, 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 win. And that's what this is really all about. So I've been very blessed. Listen, my own personal odyssey was one where the Bronx Borough president, you know, said, we got to lose weight. We've got to be healthier. And as I sat there with the 330 pound, 54 inch waistline, I said, you know something that makes good sense. And uh, it's honestly about self-care as opposed to health care. It's really about education, not asphyxiation. It is about empathy and compassion. And when you teach children to take care of a living thing in class, everything changes. As we speak, we have little ladybugs running around the room. Those are my integrated pest control right here in the middle of the South Bronx. So it creates living ecosystems. And when children learn that they are part of a living, breathing ecosystem, as opposed to an end user of a product, or uh, that changes everything. That changes everything. But putting teachers and project-based learning at the heart of classroom is something that everybody wants to see. Um, so we're just honored and humbled and grateful to be in the middle of it. And, you know, I keep saying, I keep falling up the ladder of success. I've been blessed and, and very fortunate. And, you know, we're just getting started. That's the remarkable thing. But most importantly, 2,200 living wage jobs in a community that has the highest employment and underemployment in New York City speaks volumes. Those are families and lives changed forever. So uh, we've gone from a moment to a movement. And we are just getting started and we want everyone to get on board. So uh, please check out the Green Bronx Machine website. Get a copy of the book. Get a T-shirt. Do something. And remember, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start in order to be great. And every drop fills the cup. And that's what this movement is about. You know, doing your best in this moment puts us in the best place for the next moment. Thanks so much, Stephen. And, and just to echo that, please, please check out the website. It's so inspiring. There's also a tremendous amount of content available for teachers and for families and for anybody who's educated. And Stephen's book is absolutely wonderful as well. So thank you so, so much, Stephen, for your time today. I can see the school gradually waking up all around you as well. Which yeah, is just things are happening. Thing it gets busy here. We, we are going to be making lunch. We're making pickles today. We're gearing <laughs> up for our fall salad uh, debut. We have, remarkably, we have the number one school garden to school cafe program in New York City, right here in the Bronx, in the middle of public housing. So we are getting ready. You know, the holidays are around the corner. Um, you know, and again, we've got vegans in the hood. So yeah. it's not a bad thing to have. It's, it, these are great problems to have in schools.
Thanks so much. I'd love to stay and compare pickle recipes. I made some last night as well. Uh, oh, we've got plenty. So PTS55 is known as home to the perfect pickle. We've got 10 different flavors, no, Nicholas. Well, I guess New York is, is famous for, for pickles, right? So I'm not going to say Absolutely. But we're also, we have kids who are now creating kimchi. Yeah. Go figure. Oh, we've got kimchi. We've got Bronx hot sauce. You name it. We've got it going on. Uh, next time in New, I'm in New York. Stephen, thank you so much for your time this morning. You take care and look forward to being thank in touch. Thank you kindly. And, and remember, teachers change lives. Teachers matter and it starts with you and we are all stronger together. So get out there and grow something greater and make Epic happen. From the Bronx to the world, see, se puede. <laughs> take care, Stephen. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Old School is produced by the Varky Foundation, a global education charity working to ensure that every child has a good teacher. Please join us next week for another inspirational story.